Welcome to Pure Nonfiction. I'm Tom Powers, and we're back after taking some months to adjust to this pandemic. Turns out it's not going away anytime soon, but neither are we. On this episode, I talk to Iabo Boyd, the founder of Brown Girls Doc Mafia. It's a grassroots organization representing over 4,000 women and non-binary people of color working in documentary. My number one pet peeve in my entire life is people saying that they don't know where to find people of color to shoot, to like, to do anything, really anything. I mean, there's people of color doing literally everything in the world. Yabo grew up in Denver and moved to New York, going to NYU film school. She was more focused on fiction films, but when she graduated, she started working at arts organizations that led her to nonfiction. In our interview, Iabo describes how she started Brown Girls Doc Mafia in 2015. It originated as a private Facebook group that grew into public advocacy. This week, they unveiled an online membership directory, and now they're in the midst of a fundraising campaign. You can learn more at browngirlsdocmafia.com. While she was building that organization, she also produced the documentary For Akeem about a black teenage girl in North St. Louis. It premiered at the Berlin Film Festival in 2017 and was distributed by The Orchard. Yabo is still pushing forward on her fiction filmmaking. Last year, she directed a short feminist comedy called Me Time about sex and self-care. Now she's developing her first feature script. Our conversation was recorded on August 12th. Normally, we would have met in person, but during these COVID times, she was in New York City and I was in New Jersey, connected by Zoom. I started by asking about the job that pulled her deeper into documentary, working for Chicken and Egg, the nonprofit that makes grants to women filmmakers. Well, I'd always worked in supporting women. Um, I co I co led a um, a, a women's festival while at NYU called Fusion. Um, and so, and then, so na- going to work with Chicken and Egg was a natural fit for me, um, a natural progression. And then I think seeing the lack of diversity once in the women's space became a second, you know, a third progression into looking f- to make an impact in that area. Um, and I'm sure it's a matter of like seeing myself, you know, seeing how, seeing where there are places where as a filmmaker myself, I might not be getting the benefit of the doubt. Like coming to the other side of the table and being someone who is a gatekeeper, who's who's reading and watching hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of um, applications and then going through the um, sub- submission process as a person who's deciding who gets money or support was really eye-opening about where filmmakers of color were both not um, not putting themselves in the right kind of position that would make s- that like a di- that a funder understands. Like I at Chicken and Egg, I learned how funders think, and I was like, oh, if f- filmmakers of color understood all of this they would completely shift how they apply for funding and how the films were working. Mm. And I also thought, oh, these funders have no idea what these filmmakers are trying to do. They don't get it at all. And so that was kind of like a huge 
waking up point for me. So as you were recognizing this, um, were you having dialogues with your colleagues uh, about that? Or I'm, I'm curious if you were, you know, feeling challenged in, you know, trying to bring this to light. No, it became a conversation over time, you know, at Chicken and Egg. Um, the women there, the leaders there are really wonderful about um, taking or hearing that kind of conversation, like that kind of potential criticism coming to them. They're really good at it. Um, I was the only black person working there the entire time that I worked there. Um, um, yeah, so there was, a, there, you know, there was, there wasn't, there weren't a lot of diverse voices um, at the time, um, they've done a lot in the last five years to shift their diversity in-house. Um, so, but they were always open. I mean, I think it was a kind of a matter of like what we talk about or when I say like tokenism in the workplace, you know, like I had to, or I felt compelled to speak out about it at the time and I did and they heard me, but it was very difficult. I mean, not because they were pushing back necessarily, but it was a, negotiation you know there was a conversation about how to shift the space um that was challenging for me as a young person you know who's the only poc in the space trying to do that with people who you know um were my my bosses you know so it was it was challenging but um i think that time shaped who i am now and i think it shaped who they have become too honestly at some point, you made the plunge and, and produced a documentary yourself, a uh, feature-length documentary for Akeem. Mm -hmm. um, how did you get pulled into that project? So I knew, um, so Landon and Jeremy actually did, the, the directors of that film, they actually did um, the fundraising video for Chicken and Egg. So I knew them through Chicken and Egg. They were just like consultants or contractors. And then I saw that they had a, they had four came, I think at some forum and I watched their clip and I was like completely blown away. Um, I don't know if you've seen the film, but it's, it's the section of the film where Daje and her other black girlfriends are first seeing um, the Michael Brown footage at school. And they're all just completely out of their minds, you know, with anger and frustration and confusion and I felt that way myself as a black woman. And I felt really grateful to have like their sisterhood in that moment on screen and to see them um, being really in touch with their feelings and being very articulate about how angry they were. So that drew me to the project and I pretty much just forced them to take me on as a producer. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> guys, why haven't you already hired me? you should hire me now. <laughs> and they were like, you're right. Why haven't we hired you? So it kind of became, we became a unit after that. So in the course of producing that project, you know, what, what did you learn on that project? I have so many things. That's I could talk about it for an hour, you know. Um, I don't even know where to begin, but I think that the filmmaking for that team was already there. Um, they had shot most of it when I came on and it was beautiful. And they had a rough cut that, uh, or they had a like a fine cut that they'd submitted to a bunch of festivals. And my first kind of job on that film was to say to them, 
this is not ready yet, which was really hard for them to hear. Um, but they heard it and we pulled it from a couple of festivals. I think we actually we had gotten in to um, Tribeca, I think. And I pulled it because I just thought it could be so much better. You know, they were it was good, but I, I thought it could be so much better. And the final film is at least 100 times better than the one before. <laughs> um, Actually, for clarity's sake, so it's, it was two directors on this mm -hmm. project, uh, both men. Mm -hmm. Are they both white yes. men? Um, making a film that's predominantly a black subject matter. Completely, yeah. I'm curious how that dynamic played out if, if you were bringing a different perspective that, um, that wasn't there otherwise. Yeah, um, the guys, um, Jeremy and Landon are incredibly intelligent and have a lot of heart. Um, there's, you know, the kind of joke that we always used to say with each other is that they're like NPR white guys, you know, like they understand <laughs> the issues, they are active in, you know, ch the desire to change policy and like that kind of stuff. They get it. They saw a story that is incredible. Like they have a great eye. The camera work is gorgeous, and the storytelling is good. Um, but there is a there is a little bit of just that nuance of a little bit of nuance on screen of how um, just kind of like how to sh how to further round out um, how a black person can be communicated how their identity can be communicated on screen um and just the example that i kind of go to is there's a scene in the film where um, daje's boyfriend his name is antonio is going to meet a judge um to you know to go to talk about something that has happened that he's done and it's just very simple you know it's like the guys were really generous in letting me in the edit room which i think was a part of our process of working as an interracial team which is not you know they it's not super obvious a producer would be in the edit for like months you know for six or eight months but they let me in the edit room which is great and I think I was able to see a moment in that scene where the white judge was looking at Antonio in a way that was with heart you know he felt for this kid he'd seen him before and he was coming back and he was disappointed in a way that like a father is disappointed when your kid keeps making the same mistake. This white man had feeling for, he had some, a little, a little bit of feeling for Antonio and I caught it and I was like, and I was like, guys, we have to put that in, you know? And it was just one of those things where <laughs> it's like late at night and they're like, this is not important, you know, or this, this is like not as bit important as this other part. And something about it, I just had to fight for it, you know, because it's like we the way that we allow this white man to see him is also how the audience is going to see him. A, a predominantly white audience is going to see him. So let's give them the opportunity to see him as a boy who's messed up, you know, and who deserves empathy, you know. So it's just like little things like that. And just a lot of work. My job was a lot of work in the grant writing space, too, just like bringing them, pulling them finding a, d a balance between the policy and the over-intellectualizing and bringing them closer to the heart, you know, and emotion aspects of the, the writing about the film, which I think really helped um, us gain more support from institutional spaces. I want to go to the start of Brown Girls Doc Mafia. Um, 
you know, I think some of the experiences you've already described um, would help anyone understand, you know, the the hunger you uh, would have felt to make more alliances uh, in the community. Um, so how did that begin? Yeah. Um, so there were, you know, there were the handful of black women that I knew in the industry that were the sort of obvious only p other black people. It was like Alex Hannibal and Nydra Eaton and like maybe that was it. You know, of course, Tabitha, but that was we weren't on that plane at the time. So there weren't that many. There weren't any, you know, it felt like there weren't any. And then I went to a good pitch in New York and they had Who Streets and College Behind Bars and um, um, Hazing and a couple of other docs that had like black centered subject matter. And so Good Pitch had done a really good job of making sure that the room had was super diverse and had, you know, power players who were black, both um, on the buyer side too, like the funder investor side. And so it was kind of crazy because I think I'd been in documentary for maybe like two or three years at the time. And I just sort of accepted it as a very white space and hadn't thought that much about it, honestly. I mean, I've been, I've grown up, I'm from Colorado, so I grew up in very white spaces all the time, and I've kind of just <laughs> like, okay, that's just another white space, you know? And I walked into the Good Pitch, and I was like, holy crap, you know, what's going on here? There's <laughs> like black people everywhere. And I just was so excited and, you know, started going around to all these women and introducing myself and just being like, actually, who are you? What is your name? Where do you work? How come we don't know each other? <laughs> and did that all day and got all these people to go have a drink with me. So we all had a drink that night just around the corner and um, had a great time, took a picture and um, put it on Facebook. And I, I had been thinking about um, the other kinds of powers at play in the doc space or in the film space um, as their own kind of mafias, like in a joking way, you know, there's like the mafia of the people who work at IndieWire who all know each other for the like next 15 years and and all that kind of thing. So I think that's where the word mafia came in my mind. And um, and then when I posted it, a couple of South Africa, uh, South Asian filmmakers, um, Sanan Keshki and Fariha um, Saman, saw it and were like, this is super cool. We want to make a mafia for South Asian filmmakers. And I was like, well, let's just do it together, you know. Um, so we changed it to Brown Girl Stock Mafia, and they brought in the first 50 members. From that seed moment, like, you know, how much was it, were you thinking, oh, this should be a grassroots organization versus this should be a kind of Facebook hangout group, uh, you know, that meets a few times a year at f film festivals? Well, we didn't, um, we didn't do anything for, we didn't do anything public for two or three years. Um, so the first seed was just to, it was invite people that you know, um, keep it small, keep it private, secret. And, and Facebook was the yeah, organizing tool, on am I Facebook. right? Facebook. Yep. And it's, you know, it's, it was how it is today. It just created its own ecosystem of um, sisterhood, exchanging resources, um, talking about <clears throat> the things that you're going through emotionally, holistically, professionally, creatively, you know, um, 
it was just like a refuge from the beginning. Um, and just, and also just a way to like kind of map the field. Cause we all felt very isolated and tokenized. So it's like, okay, who do we know? I know two people, you know, two people, let's put them all together. And then it just kept blowing up like crazy. And we had like 500 people within like six weeks, which was crazy to me, you know? Clearly, you had your own uh, experiences uh, and and knowledge of the challenges in the field. When you when you were going through those early weeks and months of hearing from other people, um, was there anything that surprised you? I think in those first few months, honestly, I was just surprised that these people existed. <laughs> it seems naive, you know. I think everyone can benefit from the current time of knowing about all these different groups but eight you know six years ago there wasn't really anything I know black documentary collective had been around for a long time and like d-word but I wasn't in any of those things I didn't even I didn't even really know they existed brown girls kind of really started as a people who were working on the other side of the table we weren't I mean I was a filmmaker but I, I was more thinking about it as an executive and um, it sort of branched out into filmmakers I'm wondering within such a large, diverse organization, if you were hearing different things from uh, from your members uh, about what they wanted this to be. Probably. It's really hard to remember because there's so many people in this group, you know, and there's so many times that I have always asked them what they wanted. You know, we, I'm the, the queen of surveys. We probably have like 50 surveys or something from the last five years. <laughs> so I'm sh I think that folks were generally just kind of really excited that that I wanted to do something and that something existed um, that they could fall into. And we're just happy to just jump in. You know, I think. This, the question at the time was more about how to do it as a collective, like if that was in terms of like community organizing, if that was a format that was possible. Um, but it's just really difficult to do that um, when there's a lot of people. Um, and I didn't honestly, like I think my understanding of community, community organizing was just very thin at the time. And it just, I didn't understand how I could like move forward quickly, which is what I was trying to do with also consulting with like 200 people. <laughs> so I kind of yeah. just took it upon myself to decide that I'm always going to ask the community what they want and get some variables and have that be a guiding force and how things are shaped. But that ultimately, you know, me and, and whoever's on the board is just going to move forward quickly because I think that's the thing that we needed the most at the time and still do is just like, um, momentum and getting things done. So let me ask you about the experiences this summer, and maybe I can just root this in your own personal experience. Um, in June, as these street protests began happening uh, after the killing of George Floyd um, and so many other things happening at, uh, at that same time, um, what was your response to this or you know how were you looking at this as as it unfolded i you know we had been covid was really a huge um a huge hit for for brown girls um and we were really struggling um at that time our members were really struggling a, a lot of them lost a lot of their work and um side gigs we did a lot of surveying at the time and found that most of our members actually 
are professional filmmakers. They don't have, they're not filmmakers on the side. Filmmaking is their job. And so a lot of folks have lost a lot of work and being women, there was like a, a sudden need for them to be the caretakers in their homes constantly, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, of course people are getting sick. There's a lot of uh, multi-generational um, households already. So we were dealing with a lot with COVID. It was very intense for our community. And so, and I actually had COVID in April um, and we were doing a, a Skillshare. I set up a Skillshare program like right when I was sick, <laughs> kind of as a way for them to take care of each other while I had to kind of step away. And it was during the Skillshare that George Floyd was killed. So he was killed on May 25th. Um, so the other thing, just to give some other context, is that I had assumed as a, you know, as a leader, as a person at fundraisers for Brown Girls, I was like, okay, fundraising is not going to happen for, co- for the rest of this year because of COVID. It's just not going to be a thing. So I was prepared to like Fine. dig in and just be like, okay, how are we changing what we're doing this year with no money, et cetera, et cetera. And then George Floyd was killed. And that was, I mean, Ahmaud Arbery, of course, was already an issue. That felt outrageous but that did feel very much like many you know hundreds of other ways that black men have been killed in the last 300 years Um, and when George Floyd was killed I personally felt just like very numb for probably a week and a half I didn't talk to anybody I wasn't looking at the news I was very lost Um, didn't know how to didn't know how to digest it at all. I didn't protest. Um, I was just like really confused, you know, and just really just like felt dead inside, honestly. And I think it was somebody, I can't remember who it was in the group that said something that kind of kicked me out of my funk and was like, you know, we have to do something or say something or whatever. And, or somebody I think posted a picture of, um, a white filmmaker who I know who's in my community who was shooting um, around COVID and shooting around the protests. And that was when I was like, oh, okay, this is some bullshit, (laughs) you know? Like, again, you know, like really? You know, people weren't, our members weren't shooting during COVID, you know, because of obviously wanting to take care of themselves um, because of the intergenerational caretaking um because people of color black people are more um more likely to get sick and to get sick worse etc so they weren't shooting and then when those photos started coming out more and more white filmmakers shooting we were just like okay we have to do something we have to go out and shoot because this is being this story is being robbed of us as we are watching it you know Um, there's nothing about COVID that says that one race of a filmmaker is the race to tell this perspective, you know, to tell this story from. If anything, you know, like the news was not covering as much um, the POC folks who were being affected by it. So there's just a lot of stories that were being lost at that time. And I think, I think that was the moment where I just felt like, I just wanted to remind everyone that this, that what we're doing by continuing to hire white filmmakers to tell these stories is continuing to um, 
lean into systems of oppression within our own industry. Um, and I just posted something about it on Facebook, and then my days went from working, my weeks went from working like one and a half days a week to being 100 hours a week all of a sudden because there was a movement, not just me, but other folks started speaking out about representation and behind the camera and all that. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, I can't stop now. <laughs> Can I ask you a, a devil's advocate sure. question about people filming in the streets? When I think about covering street protests, I think about you're covering a wide range of things happening and you know, something flares up on, you know, 25th Street and something else flares up on 31st Street. As a documentary uh, film archive, you know, you hope that someone is in all those places uh, catching, you know, what's going on. I mean, the, you know, it's a, you know, it it's a kind of question of people power. You You can't film a protest with just one mm -hmm. camera, you need um, many. Um, so, I mean, I wonder from, uh, I think what I hear you saying is that if stories are gonna get told about the protests, you, you know, you want uh, to see a strong representation of black people and people of color telling those stories, um, but do you think within that there is a, uh, a role for white filmmakers to be out in the streets filming? Um, of course. I mean, I am a firm believer in mo anybody telling any story they want, you know? Um, like, I want to tell stories about people of other races and other kinds of people that are different from me. I think everybody should have that ability. Um, so it's not really about that. And I think... I mean, for sure. I mean, I think white people have continued, white filmmakers have continued to ignore the opportunity to make films about whiteness, especially in the context of a protest around race. I mean, I'd watch that movie. I don't know if anybody's making that movie because white people don't like to make movies about things that are uncomfortable for themselves, <laughs> you know? Um, so there's definitely a role, whether they choose to take the role, at least this particular role, um, is up to them. And of course, I mean, getting great imagery, anyone can do with the skill that they have. Um, it's about, if there's just so many other elements that are really hard, that are like, would take days to unpack about why someone from a certain perspective has greater insight to their community than someone else does. And it's, it's, it's about the way that you ask questions, the way that you gauge a moment, how you walk up to someone, the way you're holding the camera, where are you standing, how are you positioning the camera, what are you going for, like when, what's your gaze, it's just the question of the gaze, you know, what's the outcome, um, and then once, you know, w you know, what are you interested in, like what is your eye drawn to, that's based off of both what you are organically um, like predisposed to think is important and that importance and like value is very much a part of how we grow up or how you have decided to um, have you decided to you know live in the world um, and then editing is just like a whole nother thing I mean 
that's there's just so many opportunities for something to be to go wrong and for something to go really right and yeah I mean that's just about the representation in that storytelling space is is there are so many nuances that are so underexplored even in films that aren't about black people you know like there are plenty of other films that could have used that kind of perspective or any kind of you know POC space or someone who's just different um, that could improve them creatively uh, I, I mean I think that's a you know a a strong explanation. And, and the reason I asked the question is, you know, because you talked about, you know, being prompted to action by seeing that picture of, you know, of a white filmmaker uh, covering uh, the protests. And, and, uh, you know, and I heard a lot of people um, who were making similar observations uh, at the time in the black community saying, hey, th- you know, this is our story to uh, to tell. Like, we don't want to see this monopolized um, by uh, white filmmakers again. Um, and I just, you know, I wanted to explore the, the nuance of that. Yeah. Um, so there are a few things. I mean, there's at least two that I can think of that are part of it. What I just said about perspective and aesthetics and how question how you're asking asking questions and how you're building relationships with the community and how you're making someone you know forming a story on screen but there's also um i think the thing that honestly like at least half of what prompted me to respond are the career and financial implications because covid obviously is like the biggest story of and it's going to be a huge story in our in our lifetime if not at least this decade and so knowing how the doc film works the doc field works and knowing about how documentary right now is a very commercial space where people are making money seeing how yet again filmmakers of color were going to be left out both in a storytelling space and also a financial space is a equally as part of what made me uncomfortable or made me upset, you yeah. know, because the thing about it, I think the, the, the connecting point is that COVID, of course, made everyone very nervous financially. And um, when th- when people were looking to be hired for something, you know, to shoot, um, I'm sure that many, many, many of these gatekeepers and br- yeah, people who were commissioning projects were thinking, okay, we don't have a lot of money, we don't have a lot of time. The story's happening now. Let's bring in people that we trust. Who have we worked with before? Who has made work that we've seen that we love already that's in our Rolodex? You know, that's a natural-ish inclination. Um, that's how the film industry is built on who you know, you know? Um, but the problem with that and what I've sort of been trying to underline in the way that I've been speaking out in the last few months is that these gatekeepers need to be better set up to make um, quick decisions about hiring when they have a diverse bank of people to hire. You know, they don't have it right now. They don't, as, you know, as from my experience, they, don't, they haven't been cultivating it already, which means that when you go to make a, split, a quick decision to hire someone, uh, you don't already have that diverse base ready to go. And so thinking about how to find someone who's diverse quickly feels overwhelming and like, oh, we don't have time, you know, let's just get, you know. So my whole thing is like taking a step back and saying, okay, how do we, yeah. how do we address 
where the diversity doesn't exist and prepare and better like quickly better prepare ourselves so that we can respond to a um, to a story or to you know a commission quickly knowing that you have done the work already to make sure that the people that you're looking through to hire are diverse. One of the very deliberate things that Brown Girls Doc Mafia has done is uh, created this uh, directory of, uh, of your members that's, um, that you're about to put online. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about what that effort is, uh, has been to create that directory? Sure. So um, we have a private database, you know, that's just shared amongst ourselves um, for years. Um, that ha and we use it, you know, for each other. Um, it actually got leaked somehow. I got leaked a couple, like a year and a half ago. And um, it was just kind of a, a kick in the pants to to find a way to make it public so that we can actually contribute to this this desire for diversity out there. I mean, we hadn't thought about ourselves in a way that was like talent management, you know, like which is kind of what this directory starts to become. Um, that wasn't a role that I saw Brown Girls in, though, of course, informally, people have forever been emailing me to ask for suggestions. There's lots, we have a, a lot of partnerships with festivals and funders to give them like short lists of members for opportunities so that they should be tracking, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this kind of like behind the scenes advocacy that happens. Um, but we hadn't thought about it as like a big talent thing. Um, and so I think it's been a year that we've been developing this database as a more of a public thing. I mean, we, we had to build this website first <laughs> because um, we didn't have one and we weren't, I think, I think creating something that was like branded just helped solidify that our position in the space and like our identity for ourselves and for other people. So once the website, which is really pretty, everyone should look at it. Once that was done, then it was like, okay, next step is this directory. So it's been like a year, definitely the last six months, been intensely developing it. Um, and it's been uh, its own challenge because it doesn't, because it, because we haven't, we're sort of having to reinvent a wheel better than we've seen it before. And so it's just, that's been very interactive with the community, getting a lot of feedback about what kind of stuff they want to have on there and how to make it work, et cetera. So... It's been in the works for a long time, um, but when COVID happened, and when when I, you know when I saw those the white filmmakers, um, when when I started speaking out about um, diversity in hiring, I, we needed a stopgap measure. <laughs> so we did because the directory wasn't ready yet, and so we did this um, production um, list of like brown girls who were available to shoot, just because people. My number one pet peeve in my entire life is people saying that they don't know where to find people of color to shoot, to like, to do anything, really anything. I mean, there's people of color doing literally everything in the world. So <laughs> it, it makes me so angry. So I think I just kind of like angry. I was like angry Excel sheet making, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> to make to get the first little production thing out. I'm excited to release it. I'm excited for people to use it. Um, but there, I have my own, you know, concerns or 
we'll see. We'll see how people respond. I think that once once people are faced with the with the truth of like seeing all these opportunities, will we still hang on to this idea that there is just not there aren't enough people who are talented out there? I'm just hoping that everyone's going to prove me wrong, you know. So we'll see. I want to thank Iabo Boyd for speaking with me. You can read more about her films at iaboboyd.com. Then check out the website browngirlsdocmafia.com to see their new membership directory and consider a donation to their fundraiser. One reason that pure nonfiction has been quiet the past few months is because of my day jobs at film festivals those shows will still go on, though mostly online. TIFF in Toronto is happening in September, and Doc NYC will return for its 11th year in November with online screenings available across the United States. The past several months, I've interviewed over 30 documentary makers for the Doc NYC web show Friday Fix. You'll find a free archive on the YouTube channel Doc NYC Fest. To celebrate the return of pure nonfiction, we created a documentary bingo card for summer 2020. You can see it on the pure nonfiction pages of Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please write us back and tell us what you've been watching this summer. Thanks to our team, series producer, Hannah Nordenswan, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Anehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. <laughs>